Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and uh, for your word uh, to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and open our eyes, uh, that we might uh, hear a word from you, uh, our good shepherd. Lord, give us the courage uh, to follow uh, your voice uh, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we, uh, we've been having a conference colloquium, a conversation the past uh, couple days, and uh, Jono is, uh, is the ringleader. But it might be helpful for y'all um, to introduce yourselves and what exactly it is you're doing here. The first one's a bit easier. Um, I'm John O'Leinball. know many of you, but some unfamiliar faces. Um, I teach New Testament at the University of Cambridge, and I am here because uh, probably about two years ago now, Gil, is that probably right? Started thinking that it would be really useful to have a conversation on a topic um, which we'll be talking about tonight, which is the distinction between the law and the gospel, um, which was really important and a sort of central way of understanding something that happened in the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation. Um, old news to a lot of you. Um, but there were two main traditions that came out of that. There was the Lutheran tradition and the Reformed tradition. And I thought, you know, it would be helpful to have Lutheran theologians and Reformed theologians come and talk about that, figure out where we agree, where we disagree, that sort of thing. So that's what we've been doing for the last two days. And I think we're at least as confused as we were before. Um, but it's been fun. So, uh, I'm Mike Allen. I teach theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and I'm here because Jono said be here. So excited about tonight. Thank you very much. Mark Mattis. It's really an honor and pleasure for me to be here. I've been here before. I was one of the uh, Linton preachers several years ago. It's always a great pleasure for me to be here because the hospitality is so rich and warm. So I'm I'm always enchanted and charmed by you folks. It's really a delight for me to be here. I presently uh, serve in Des Moines, Iowa at an ELCA college called Grandview University. I teach uh, religion, theology, and philosophy there. Thank you. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, tonight we're going about an hour and a half at the most. Um, not all of this. We'll get some interaction with you all. So if you have questions, be thinking about that. might be nice to begin with not to assume anything. When we talk about the Lutheran tradition and the Reformed tradition, what does that mean? Well, uh, Garrison Keeler can answer that, and he's he's not here. There, it's 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 not a joke. There really are the sad Lutherans and the happy Lutherans, and actually, that's right embedded in my institution. My institution was founded by Danes. They were called the Happy Danes. There was another school that no longer exists called Dana College in Nebraska. They were the sad Lutherans. Uh, so that's that's not that's that's for real. Um, so what was the question now? What's the, when you talk about the Lutheran tradition, what does that mean? Is it, oh, is it one color well, is it hard. I don't know if people have a, yeah. a grounding. Well, our 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 discussion this last several days has been over law and gospel. So I mean, law and gospel is something which is which is really precious in the Lutheran tradition, um, and it's not precious only to Lutherans. It's precious to many people, but. Uh, the tendency in Lutheranism is is to push that God has two words, a word of command and a word of promise, and that commands are not the same as, as promises. 
So the gospel, strictly speaking, you could talk about the gospel in a broader sense as all of God's truth, but the gospel, strictly speaking, is the promise of your forgiveness uh, for Jesus' sake, for his atonement, uh, and the freedom that you have in that in your conscience with respect to the law's accusations. So in, in terms of your conscience... Uh, you are quite free from the law, as one person put it to me at this congregation. When I was here before, they quoted Romans uh, 10, uh, 4, Christ is the end of the law. I was so impressed because you could go to a Lutheran church and no lay person could ever quote the Bible. Uh, but um, that that would be something that would be very precious in that tradition. That doesn't mean that there's no form to life. Of course, of course, we live in a world uh, where life is shaped and formed. And it certainly doesn't mean that there's not a wholesome path to walk in. Uh, God leads us into that path and into that walk. But but the tendency in Lutheranism is to make a distinction between uh, the word is command and word is promise. Yeah. Uh, in the Reformed tradition, and, and you might identify Reformed churches that you'll see on street corners and around town, uh, Presbyterians and Dutch Reformed or Christian Reformed uh, are the, the two largest groups that you'll encounter uh, coming out of the, the European continent and then the British Isles and Scotland especially. Uh, some happy, some sad. <laughs> um, but not officially so. Some case. sober, some not. Uh, but uh, uh, would share a lot with the Lutheran tradition, slightly younger by just a few years, were the, the little brother or sibling as it were. Um, and the, the tradition, so if, if you're thinking back in time, we're basically 500 years, almost, next year, uh, from Lutheranism starting to form, depending on kind of exactly what you date and so forth. Uh, and we started, as Reformed churches, just a few years thereafter. And in the first couple decades, there was a lot of conversation about would Mark and I both have to be here or would we just be one church? And it turned out they didn't quite get along on everything, though on most things they were pretty much in lockstep about the gospel, about Jesus, about the Bible, uh, about the importance of, of local church practices. Uh, and were it not for some rather specific disagreements about sacraments, uh, we wouldn't both have to be sitting here today, I suppose. Um, but we are, and... Traditions have played out and there are differences. And uh, as Mark mentioned, there, there are, of course, some Reformed folks who love and cherish the Bible and grace and Jesus and some who don't, sadly. Um, but at the heart of the tradition is a, a similar commitment uh, to the idea of promise. And we often, we love the word covenant, the idea that God uh, is not aloof. God made you and designed you and placed you in this beautiful world so that you can be with him and delight in him and in doing so give glory to him and that Jesus is the fullest gift that makes that possible here and forevermore and uh, that glory and blessedness is uh, really the, the sort of energizing heart of what we call the reformed tradition and how we think about the gospel. All right, I, I get to talk about myself. That's nice, because um, I'm neither a Lutheran, nor am I Reformed in the strict sense that I'm not a Presbyterian, or I'm not part of the, of the United Reformed Churches or something. I, like many of you here, an Episcopalian, an Anglican, an heir of the English Reformation. And one of the things that means is that, well, one way to 
picture it is to set this up properly, I should actually probably be sitting in between Mark and Mike because one way to characterize what the English Reformation was um, was that it was a tradition that really tried to listen to and learn from both the Lutheran tradition. This was especially true in the earliest phase from about, say, 1519 to about 1540, especially. And then it also really tried to listen to and learn from the Reformed tradition. The Reformers in England were actually always inviting Lutherans and the Reformed to come to England and be teachers in the university and things like that. Um, unfortunately, most of the Lutherans didn't make it, but some of the Reformed did. They came to party. But yeah. showed up. It was a bad choice, unfortunately. Martin Bootser, for example, made it. He made it to Cambridge to teach, and then he was dead. And they buried him in Cambridge, but then they dug up his bones, because this is how the English Reformation tended to go. It ebbed and flowed, and it depended who the monarch was, exactly whether or not you could keep Martin Bootser in the grave or not. So we've lost his bones, but we have a nice little statue in the church there in Cambridge. Um, so... The English Reformation is a tradition, and it's even, oh, that's wonderful. Um, it's the cops. Yeah, <laughs> rave. Um, so it's a tradition that it made sense for us to be here and to be listening to and learning from them again. And to the extent that there's such a thing as a, I mean, and there is a thing, it's just it's in the sort of back of your prayer book now, but it, it used to be an important thing, and I still happen to think it is, this thing called the 39 Articles, which is a confession in the English Reformation. It's intentionally written to be broad enough to sort of rule out certain things which were seen as Roman Catholic abuses. It's an explicitly Protestant and Reformational doctrine document, but it also tried to be broad enough that a Lutheran or a Reformed person could come to England and worship in that tradition. And so it was, it was nice to be able to sort of wear my Anglican hat and host and listen to this conversation and do it at a place like the Advent. It felt very appropriate in that respect. Um, plus then I didn't have to write any papers or anything. I just got to listen, and that was good too. Yeah, maybe I'm going to ask myself a question. Yeah, I got a lot of questions heading into this. Is Why would the Advent be hosting something like this? Uh, and, and I'm sure when y'all were invited, uh, Mark, you might be an exception because you've been here before, but like, it took an Episcopal church for this to happen, uh, for the Presbyterians and the Lutherans to get together uh, with some Anglican contribution. Uh, but it's, it's part of our historic trajectory. Uh, as Jono said, uh, in the early 1550s, Cranmer pleaded with Melanchthon and uh, John Calvin uh, to come to England uh, because he's lazy, uh, and uh, and to be uh, to have a general council of the church while Trent was meeting uh, with the Roman Catholics, and then, uh, in fact, John Knox um, was offered a bishopric uh, in the Church of England before he said, "I'm going to Scotland," uh, and and headed up north, and uh, and even uh, in the 19th century, some of y'all know Jacob Smith. He's the rector of Calvary and St. George's in Manhattan. St. George's, uh, a great uh, one-time evangelical powerhouse. Uh, Stephen Ting was a preacher there and actually wrote a book about the law and the gospel. Uh, so it's it's been uh, part of our tradition, but really, uh, of course, uh, very glad and delighted to help facilitate this and, and to see it through and, uh, and to make it happen. Uh, well, talking about uh, the law and, and the gospel, can you just give us uh, a little bit of an overview of uh, what is uh, law from a reform perspective, what is gospel from a reform perspective, and what is, 
what is it from a Lutheran perspective? Yeah, um, the the temptation is when you think about law or gospel, right? Your 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 first instinct is to think command on the one hand, and happy or good news on the other. So do this, or here's something that was done and is a a, a benefit to you. And it's not that there's nothing true to that distinction, but things are a little more subtle. Um, because one thing that you'll find, probably if you've not already, as you've encountered the Bible, either in your own reading and meditation or in listening to the word preached, is that oftentimes things can strike you in strange ways. And so theologians have noted, and and Reformed folks are, are very aware of the fact that even good news can hit you in a way that's rather hard. Uh, or you can receive good news in a way that perhaps is surprising. Uh, you can be told that Jesus is something for you or God wants to give you something, and you or people you know can receive that, well, couldn't possibly want that for me. Um, or I don't measure up to the kind of person God would do that for. Um, on the other hand, God can actually tell you to do certain things or give you a, a call or a command and it can be life-giving, right? Um, little girl, wake up and rise. And the dead girl gets off the bed, right? Uh, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, right? Well, that's, that's not a brutal call. That's actually a life-giving command, right? Um, repent and believe. Jesus has given you life. So uh, commands can be good, and news can be received in threatening ways. Um, the real issue when we're talking about law and gospel is how do you relate to God? And in, in the reform world, we oftentimes use the language of, of, as I mentioned, covenant to explain this. Um, are you relating to God strictly in what we might call a covenant of works, the kind of framework that, that is established in Eden at creation where your obedience and your, your perfect, perpetual obedience to God's law is going to be the reason that God's going to smile upon you? Um, are you living with that sword hanging over your head, as it were? And are you hearing every bit of news as, do I measure up to that? And every command as, I'd best do this if I want to enjoy that. That would be law um, in, in a very real sense. Or are you living in, in what we see even from the very beginning in Genesis 3 when God says to, to sinners, there's a, there's a way of grace, not by perfect perpetual obedience, but by God's provision of everything that we need, and we need a lot. Uh, he gives Adam and Eve, Eve promises that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. He gives them covering, right? He provides that which will cover their shame, and he gives them protection. He sends them out of the garden so that they're not harmed further, right? Um, and, and so he provides in a, a multifaceted way for all their needs. And we want to talk about gospel in a pretty thick way, about all the ways Jesus ultimately provides for your every need, for, for sin's penalty, the guilt that we bear, the shame, uh, the punishment that we deserve, uh, and for sin's power, the way in which it, it just restricts us. It, it leads us to curve in on it, to care about ourselves too much, uh, to focus on our success or our failure too much, rather than to find our, our being, our life, our bliss, our joy, our hope in Jesus. Uh, and so we often try and use those, those covenant terms. 
how do you see yourself relating to God? And, and does that lead to a life of faith in Christ where you find all in him or a life of sort of self-trust and all the either arrogance or despair that's going to flow from that? Thank you. Do you all, are you all familiar with the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8? Okay. Um, so I think about that story. The woman is trapped, and she's trapped by the law because her accusers have a legitimate divine basis against her, right? She has disobeyed the law. She's caught. She's trapped. And it's not just the customs of her people that entrap her. It's God's own law that entraps her. And I think from the Lutheran perspective, there's a sense that we are all vulnerable to the law's function of accusing. The law doesn't only accuse, but the law most certainly will accuse at some point a sinner in his or her life. Now, what was mercy for this woman who was caught in this trap by God's own law? Did Jesus could have looked at them and said, aim for her head? That would be merciful. Give her a painless way to die. The wages of sin is what? Death. That's what God has decreed. And in that accusation, she is facing that death. In a sense, she's experiencing that alienation from God. Now, Jesus writes on the ground. There's different theories about what Jesus might have written. But because Jesus doesn't say aim for the head, he says, who amongst you is without sin? He is her advocate. He's her advocate, not just against those people accusing her, He's her advocate against God's own law itself. Jesus is willing to take the consequences himself of that law for that woman. He's making himself vulnerable that they'll pick up the stones and throw it at him. That's Jesus' advocacy and defense for that sinner caught in the act. He liberates her so that her identity no longer comes from her accusers. Even that accusation of God's own law that doesn't disappear or go away. The wages of sin is death. She's an adulteress. She should die. But her identity comes from him, her rescuer. And in a sense, he validates her. Not as a sinful person, but as a creation of God. And with her identity no longer coming, then either from her accusers or even in a sense God's own law, he sets her free. Go and sin no more. She has a new identity. She has a new lease on life, being rescued from the jaws of death, Life looks entirely different. You've known people who have been in the hospital, who have faced death, 
and have pulled through. And they often look at life through gratitude and love. Jesus opens a way for her, a path for her to love God from her heart and to serve her neighbor. And again, that, from Lutheran perspective, is the gospel. So maybe playing off that a little bit, if thinking about law and gospel from the one true God, um, capital G, obviously, how appropriate is it to think about the law that maybe the lowercase g gods around us place upon us? I think we titled this Dying to Live. What do the law and gospel have to do with me? So if we think of our Fitbit, for instance, as a god, you know, in the 10,000th step, that's a big thing in our house, um, you know, it compels you, it accuses you, it, it makes you go out, or, you know, our 401ks, or our college funds, keeping up with the Joneses, how appropriate is it to think about law in that sense? We're not talking Torah. We're not talking God. Just play around with that. Well, I just talked, so maybe I should pass the... Absolutely. Okay, you go ahead. I'll, I'll go. I'll go yeah. back. Well, you know, it's interesting. In, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's talking to a people who... And there's a lot of difficulty figuring out exactly what's going on, and, and people like Jono spend time debating this in scholarly ways. But we basically know this, that there's a group that sort of roughly uh, thinks that, that Jews who've been God's people and have had a law that's designed how they eat, how they worship, how they organize their life over and against other ethnic groups, um, and, and how they've been brought together with Gentiles, this side of Jesus and Pentecost. And there's a group that sort of wants to pull back and say that the Gentiles effectively need to either be spurned or behave like the Jews. It's a gross generalization, but that's the basic thing. And it boils down to, who do you get to eat with? Can a, a Jewish believer eat with a Gentile believer? Um, they might eat pork. They might not follow dietary law. They, they, they might eat in a way that, that your family doesn't eat. And the catch, of course, is that's a divinely given law, right? I mean, God told Israel to, to eat a certain way back in the day. God told Israel to be different from the nation centuries before. The only catch is, as Paul's writing to the Galatians, it's not that time anymore. The, the seasons have changed. It's a new era, and you don't follow all those old rules in precisely the same way. They've, they've ended and climaxed in Christ, in whom there's neither Jew nor Gentile, right? But, but all are one as we're baptized into him. Um, Paul gets rather animated and excited about folks who think you are justified, you are righteous, because you follow a law God gave you a while ago that's no longer on the books for you. I can only fathom what Paul, what Paul would say um, if he came to the year 1600 or 1500, say, or to the time of the Reformation, perhaps, when human laws and traditions were being heaped upon people's consciences. And that's why Martin Luther got rather excited about... Uh, certain customs and social mores and expectations for devotion and worship and life and behavior, some of which were good, some of which were pretty bad, none of which were from God's own mouth. And so Luther brought the same sort of excitement that Paul did to the Galatians saying, you can't demand people 
think that they only enjoy Christ and his benefits if they follow these other conditions that have not been given by God for you. Um, And I think in our own way, we have to say, Paul's words hit us just as hard, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, uh, having the right look, having the right investment portfolio, uh, being healthy and eating organic and avoiding all that gluten out there, uh, voting the right way. Stop, I'm uh, feeling terrible. Though. I know, yeah. You know, making sure you throw the right hashtag on your Facebook feed or whatever um, so that you're supporting or protesting all the right thing. I mean, these things can can become expectations for what it's like to be a humane, civilized, loving, educated, cool, hip person. Um, and that's okay. Just as long as you don't take it too seriously. And the world takes it kind of seriously. And all of us, if we're honest, from time to time, take it pretty seriously. And so I think you know, hearing a word like Paul's letter to the Galatians will remind us of how even divine words shouldn't be condemning when they're not intended to be a law for us now, much less human expectations, uh, that, that we not heap them on ourselves or receive them from others. And so I do think there's an appropriate way to, to see an analogy, Gil. No, I think it's really helpful, Mike, especially that um, the sort of reasoning that goes, if this is true of God's law, then of right. course it's even more true and more ridiculous to right. think that we could somehow you know, get God's love towards us to be positive when it was negative or more intense or something like that based on some laws that we've made up. But I do think, too, and you were definitely pointing toward this at the end, that there are real ways in which the experience of those kinds of laws can feel very similar. Because take the example from John 8 and the woman caught in adultery that Mark was talking about. What's happening there and the reason the law's accusing her is because her actions are out of step with the law. And the law is rightly and accurately saying to her, you deserve death. And what it does in that way is it pins her or ties her to herself. And what she's done now, if that's going to determine who she is, what God sees and says when he looks in her, then on the basis of the law, she's in big trouble because she's sort of tied to herself. The answer to the question, who is she, would be, well, she's her. She's the answer to the question of her identity. And the law is going to sort of hold her to that. And in 10 million ways, all of these things um, that can feel like stress, feel like anxiety, feel like whatever they are, are things that tie us to ourselves if we think that we are the answer to the question, who am I? So if you think what you do or don't do defines who you are, well, then it really matters Not just it matters for your waistline and your length of life, but it really matters if you get 10,000 steps, right? And what your Fitbit sleep score is. This is my favorite thing about the Fitbit. Not just that it measures your walking, but it measures your sleeping because that needs to be very productive as well. And all of these things are just ways in which we can monitor ourselves, which in and of itself can be a good and healthy thing. But if you're monitoring yourself to answer the question, who am I? Well, this is a profoundly unhelpful and unhealthy thing. And this is where Mark's point about the amazing thing about John 8, the miracle of mercy in John 8, is that the woman's identity does not come from the woman. It comes from her advocate, from the one who says, neither do I condemn you. And if who you are is not determined by what you do or don't do or how many steps you take or how many hours you sleep, or how well you parent, 
or your investment portfolio or any of these things, and none of mine are looking that good for what it's worth. If those things don't answer the question who you are, but if that question is answered by what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for you, well, then we're, we're playing a very different game, right? And those things can just be what they are. And they don't necessarily have to be accusing. But it doesn't change both, as you were saying, there's a logic that makes sense, and there's a reality that because we assume that we're the answer to the question of our identity, it's why we experience these things. It's why we can't sleep, right? And, um, yeah, or I could say, I don't know if you want to jump in, Mark, or yeah, pass back. Yep. Thank you. I really appreciate what's been sca- said. Um, I'd like to uh, reflect on a personal experience. It was my privilege several years ago to uh, uh, give a lecture at uh, an Anglican church in Charleston, South Carolina. I don't remember the exact year. Um, it was a delightful parish uh, filled with young people, young families. A young man came up to me. He had not been raised in the Episcopal or the Anglican tradition. He, he came out of some kind of fundamentalist tradition. And some kind of word must have gotten out about me that I was some kind of antinomian. That means that I'm against the law. And so he came up to me with the Bible open, which I greatly respect, and with a passage, I believe, somewhere in the pastoral epistles, I forget exactly where, that, that is an imperative to the effect of be virtuous, be a virtuous person. He must have thought that whatever I was going to say was going to undermine that. And I looked right at him. I said, well, if the scripture says to be virtuous. What's, that's it. Go out there, be virtuous. That's what you're supposed to do. I could say that quite uh, readily and truthfully because in my background, my tradition, there's a sense that before God, it's just like the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is, in relationship to God, there really is no ladder that we could possibly climb. Jesus has come down a ladder for us. There's a fancy word for it. It's called apophaticism. And uh, you don't need to know that, but um, it, that is the word for it. And uh, the thought is, like St. Augustine said, if, if you can think it, it's not God. God is always greater. Because God's always greater, there's no proportion that we could possibly measure ourselves by to come up to God. So we are passive before God. But are we active in real life? Yeah, Absolutely. So before the world, before a neighbor, before people, be active. That's what you, that's what you're designed to be. And I say be virtuous. That is develop your potential to be, uh, a good citizen, a good person, a good Christian. I teach college students. I despise sloth. Sloth is for me even as much as pride one of the chief deadly sins. So by all means, we, we need to develop potentials, not for ourselves, but but to help our neighbor in the world. You know, I mean, one of the... And the reason why everybody laughed about the Fitbit is because it's true, because we're all wanting a word to be able to measure our own progress in life. But how that works spiritually, um, what is the role of the law? And again, 
the overarching idea of the law, not just the Mosaic law, but you can get into that as well. Um, in the life of a Christian, uh, and how effective is it in this this idea that um, uh, of sanctification? Are we getting better and better as the days go on? Mike, you just wrote a book on sanctification, so okay. I just thought I'd tell everyone that. You should buy Mike's book. It's on sanctification. Thanks. Mike. Um, but I'll talk about sin instead. Uh, you know, I mean, you think about the Fitbit and, you th- and why the law in its accusing role, especially, would be helpful. Everybody out there knows they've got issues, right? I mean, some of us cover it up at times uh, with bravado or arrogance or whatever, but we all know we've got issues, right? You're, people are working on something. They're despondent about something. They're depressed about something. Uh, they're angry about something. It may be inside. It may be outside. You know, they may blame themselves or others, mom, dad, the system, whatever. But we all know we've got problems. But having problems is not the same thing as knowing yourself to be a sinner before God. Um, we got Lutherans, Reformed, and Anglicans. I'll, I'll bring in a Methodist. Uh, Stanley Harwas said a number of years ago that sin is a theological achievement. He didn't mean breaking in and you know cheating on your taxes or breaking in and stealing from the, the, the register of a bank is an achievement. But knowing that what's wrong with you is sin and not just a psychological disorder, not just uh, bad nurture, not just some personality issue, but knowing that ultimately at the, the real root of what's really wrong with me is that I've sinned against a holy and loving God. Uh, I got other issues. I have medical issues. I have relational issues. I have intellectual issues. I have social you know, There are all sorts of things that are true, but they're not the heart of the issue. And the law recenters us because the world tells you you got issues. You drive by billboards every day that say the problem with you is your car isn't good enough or your waistline isn't right, you know, or you don't have the right look. Uh, you don't live in the right part of town, right? Uh, that's very palpable and real. And the Bible gives you a voice to say, actually, actually, there's a much more real issue that can easily be forgotten. It doesn't ever make it to the six o'clock news, right? Which is the most depressing thing ever. And the really depressing thing never gets brought up, that there are a bunch of sinners in the town and in the world, and we're chief among them, right? So the law's first great role is, is just saying, here's the real deal. Ultimately, underneath all sorts of other things like Fitbits and personality disorders and medical issues and financial woes uh, and political skirmishes, ultimately, it's sin before God. And being told that is good and necessary, right? You can't, you can't deal with something. You can't see uh, the good and the gift and the provision apart from seeing the need and the profound problem in the right way. A doctor can't treat you unless they diagnose you. And the first thing God does is he diagnoses your root issue, not the, the symptoms that float at the surface, but what's ultimately killing you. Um, and the law does that. And uh, that's a good, that's a need, uh, if anything good is to come afterward. 
I find that really helpful. I think St. Augustine is absolutely right uh, when he says, and you probably know from his prayer uh, addressed to God, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our nature is to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. But we don't live according to this nature. And thereby, we do exactly what Mike has been saying. That That is at the core root of our, of our sin. In terms of any progress in the Christian life, I'm apt myself to say that my progress, if I make any at all, is to realize each and every day just how much I, as a sinner who does not fear love and trust in God above all things, absolutely need Jesus. Each and every day in returning to Jesus, if there's any progress I make, it's the good sense to go to Jesus. Because my deepest core in me, I want to be like those two guys who when the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, was about to fall, I want to grab it, right? Remember that story? What happened to those two guys? Yeah, they're struck dead. Yeah, that's me. Oh, I can really help God make this world right. God's not doing the kind of job that I could do. I could do it so much better than God can do it. But uh, that's part of my distorted nature. And that's exactly why I need to return uh, to God's promise, in a sense, God's covenant in the waters of baptism uh, and the promise given in baptism each and every day. Return to Jesus. You brought up John 8 with the woman caught in adultery, and it's just interesting to me that after Jesus says, um, you know, he who is without sin, let them cast the first stone, uh, John says that the older people left first so that they might actually have been a lot more in touch with their own sinfulness. Um, but you see other instances in, uh, in the Gospels where, you know, the rich young ruler who comes uh, to Jesus and it says Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then he went away sad, uh, which my children do often uh, when, when I tell them things. So pastorally speaking, in, in the pastoral encounter, when someone comes to you and says, this is what I'm struggling with, how do you discern where you drop the hammer and say, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me? Uh, and where do you apply, uh, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more? I'm sure we'll all probably like a turn at this, um, but one of the things that's really helpful um, as we're talking about this distinction between the law and the gospel and the two different ways that God does the things that he wants to do with his creatures. He wants to take sinners and show them what their real problem is. He wants to diagnose them, get to the root problem. And Mike's talking about that as the accusing purpose of the law. It's what the law does when it confronts a sinner. And then God also has this thing to do. Those who have been diagnosed, he also wants to deliver. Those whom he has killed, he wants to call out of the tomb. And this is the work that God does through the gospel. And one of the things that does is it helps us think about how to talk to people, how to discern which word to use. Does the rich young ruler who, as he says, I've kept all the commandments from my youth, what does he need? Well, Jesus seems to think he needs diagnosis. And Jesus gives him the law in a very strong form. One thing you lack, sell all you have and give it to the floor. And it seems to do its diagnosing, crushing work because he leaves sad, right? 
to a woman caught in adultery who seems to be pretty aware that she's stuck, that what she deserves is death, and maybe the best she thinks she can hope for is kill her quickly, what she needs to hear is, neither do I condemn you. Right, so you have this. But one other way that this is helpful, I think, and this is really important, is by helping us think through how to talk pastorally, how to talk to our friends, how to talk to our children, how to talk to our spouses, how to talk to each other, how to preach, all the different ways we might do it. Because the distinction between law and gospel is telling us that God has different things he needs to do to sinners who think they're fine and think they're alive. He needs to diagnose them and put them in the grave. And because God has things he wants to do to those who are in the grave, who have been diagnosed, deliver them, raise them from life. The first thing the distinction between law and gospel teaches you about talking is to not talk until you have listened because you have to know who you're talking to. And so you need to listen. Am I talking to the rich young ruler or am I talking to the women, woman caught in adultery? Because you're going to have something very different to say. And so it's somewhat ironic, but the first lesson in speaking from the distinction between law and gospel is shut up and listen. And until you've discerned who you're speaking to, you don't know what to say because there's a word that puts in the grave and there's a word that says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead. And that's a very different kind of thing. Um, That's really helpful. Uh, Let me plug your worship service, actually, because one catch is you want to listen and you want to discern and you want to try and love prudently and thoughtfully, but you will screw it up because we all screw it up and I've tried to help my kids and my students and my spouse and my friends and it doesn't always fare so well and oftentimes I I misjudge or I judge right and they hear it exactly wrong even though I assure you I said it right you know Um, and you see that in the Bible people hear things you know Jesus will teach on one thing and you would think altar call you know people are coming in and they they flee or uh, a word that is stern is said and people actually flock and they salivate they find it life-giving the spirit brings people into people he hits their ears in different ways you might say with different texts and so one of the most important things is something hopefully if you're participating in the weekly worship here uh, that other traditions you know we we would look to you and and the Book of Common Prayer is a great strength is scripture laden services so that you are being trained yourself to hear God's word. And more and more, I realize you don't, you don't cover all of God's word, but great portions of God's word week by week so that you're having your imagination and your thoughts and your feelings and your desires trained by that so that then hopefully you will have more biblical intuitions. Uh, you know, perhaps what we cherish most and in lots of ways, I am envious of the scripture saturated service that you will have, because oftentimes reformed churches for all our love about the Bible, we preach a long time and sometimes don't actually have as much Bible reading, praying or singing. And it's a travesty. Uh, so be grateful for what you have. Um, but one thing we cherish especially is regular praying, singing, reading, meditating on the Psalms and just learning how to read yourself in how David and those that 
that are being gathered in with David's Psalms are are exposing the anatomy of the soul, as John Calvin put it, um, and and able to take it to God in prayer. And always, whether angry, uh, whether defeated, whether victorious or joyful, always to take it before God in in faith, not curving in, uh, not not looking to prove oneself, uh, like John O mentioned, but 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 looking to receive from God. And so you can learn, uh, oftentimes even subconsciously, how to speak to others by, by simply participating in those patterns of worship and, and trying to think upon, what am I picking up from the rhythms of biblical language uh, that I could use as encouragement, as exhortation, the, the carrot, the stick, the appropriate uh, word or text at any given moment. Um, it's a great gift that you get to enjoy week by week. Well, thank you. Uh, it wasn't said this week, but it's often a, um, a common way to look at law and gospel. So it, it's really very easy to remember to comfort the afflicted. That's what? Gospel. To afflict the comfortable. That's a way of, of looking at law. So remember about the parable of the, um, of the prodigal son. Prodigal son has come to himself. He sees his need. Uh, what does the dad do? Does he does he afflict the comforted or does he comfort the afflicted for the prodigal? Exactly. Now think about the elder brother. Really, what does the elder brother need? Does he need to be comforted or in a sense, does he need to be afflicted? Yeah, does he welcome his brother, his younger brother back? Or I assume he's younger. Does he welcome the brother back? No, but should he? In a, in a, in a sense, he should. They're family, right? So in, in a sense, he needs, he needs to be afflicted. He needs to hear, hear that hard truth that whom God owns, you are not to turn back. Um, so I think that can be a helpful way to answer that question, a discernment who needs, who needs to be comforted, who needs to be afflicted. And I think it's fair to bring up that in, in many cases with, with human beings, they do need to be exhorted. They do need to be pushed. I, I, I experience that with my students on a regular basis. If I don't do it, they won't necessarily uh, do it for themselves. What I really appreciate what, what you had, to, especially just now to say, uh, was, was to live deeply in the scriptures and in the, in the Psalter. Luther loved to talk about the spontaneity of goodness flowing from the heart. That makes sense to me. Um, well, when I think about people who do things spontaneously, I, I think of a, a person who can golf well. Do they golf well just because they, that's the first time they're out there? No, they practiced at it. Uh, they know something about the game of golf. They become good at it. You're more spontaneous with something that you're more practiced at. And especially to know the scriptures well, as was just said, and again, especially the Psalter, you know, helps frame your life so that you you... When you hear the scriptures in church, um, you you identify with people in that text, and that gives you a kind of model of, of how you are to live your life. So I, I really resonate with that push about uh, investment in the Holy Scriptures. Thank you all. I've got several questions, but I'm thinking, let me see, anything from, do you have any questions first? Yeah, David?
know, Luther's notion of all of life is repentance. Um, and so the role of, you know, this idea that, you know, if you preach the gospel, you're going to cre create antinomians and, it, and, and that you don't have to worry about the law because it's, you don't have to worry about it. Well, you don't have to worry about accusations uh, from the law. It's come to its end in Christ. Uh, but that doesn't mean there's there, there's no longer a purpose to the law. Again, I my my own way of looking at it was to say that before God we're passive, in the world we're very active, and um, there is guidance from the law in in how we treat one another. So, on, in a very simple basis, that's that's how I would answer that. But I really appreciate what you just had to say. Um, about about again the dying and rising in, in Christ. Yeah. Just because I liked what you said, and I want to I want to say it too. Um, but it's just interesting to me how many ways the scriptures have to make the point that we have to die. I mean, it's almost overwhelming. It says, you know, Jesus has multiple ways. Unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it could bear no fruit. Right? We have language that circumcision, which doesn't sound like something that brings death, actually what it is, is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So this is actually apparently an image of death and new life. You have in the prophet Jeremiah the language of what needs to happen is you have to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. In Ezekiel, you have the language that you have a valley of dry bones and they have to live somehow, right? And it's this very strange thing that apparently the human problem is such that you can't just make the sick person better or you can't just make the ignorant person smarter or you can't just make the sort of um, off track person more on track through some coaching. That's not the kind of situation we're talking about here. The situation is such is that the sinner needs to die. And if there's not death, then there can't be life. And the thing about this work that God does through speaking law and gospel, and principally the work he does by carrying out law and gospel through the death and resurrection of Jesus, is that he does the thing that actually puts us in the grave and raises us out of it. Now that sounds strange. We're sitting here. We seem to be plenty alive. But you get passages in scripture which say very unexpected things like, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as counterintuitive as it seems, scripture seems to be making the claim not just that what we need to do is die and be raised, but that in Christ and through God's word, is precisely what God has done, such that the Christian life in its truest form is life after death. That's what we're living right now, life after death. And it's precisely because we're living life after death that the Christian life can actually be a life now in which you rest in peace. These things which we think of in the future are precisely descriptions of our life in Christ. Not that we always experience it that way, precisely because we're still in the flesh. But that's the reality of who we are, those who are living life after death and therefore invited to rest in peace. And I just think that's kind of cool. Can I have one thing just real quick? And if you've been baptized, um, that's what that symbolizes, right? Uh, I mean, 
I assume most of our traditions, we probably are a little gentle with the water. But <laughs> our Baptists, they have the, the imagery right in terms of you get dunked down and immersed with water, and it's meant to symbolize death because water in the Bible is all about death and chaos. And then you get yanked out and risen from the dead. And so there's just this beautiful image at the very beginning of the Christian life. And that's why Paul picks on baptism in Galatians when he says, you're not identified by being a Jew and in or a Gentile and being out or being slave or free or male or female, but by being baptized in to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's just this beautifully powerful image for, for that centrality of death. I wonder while we're in this vein, think about preaching. But a lot more people in this room hear sermons than preach sermons. So how do we hear a sermon with law and gospel in mind, with this idea of rest in peace that we're in this right now, Fitbits, all that we just said? How do we hear a sermon? What I just want to add just one more thought with what was said because I, I so much appreciate it because, of course, Jesus has said that he's come to bring life and life more abundantly. Exactly. So since we've already died, it seems like our defenses can go kind of down, which means we can really receive this world as the precious gift that it is in its fullness. So it, it, the tendency that we have with this world is to throw up our defenses because, oh, my goodness, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle everything that comes my way. Well, our God has already handled it for us, and we don't have to be so uptight. And it, it permits a person to experience not less, but in fact more of the world because it's experienced as gift and, and creation. So I, I, I want to affirm that, that sense of abundance that, that, that's been said. Um, in terms of, of preaching, I go back, I, I do look at Luther's sermons, and oh my goodness, they're quite didactic. They're quite exegetical. They're, they're quite teaching. They're designed to get you to really know the scriptures. I've often thought, my goodness, I wonder how similar this is to Calvin. Um, and I tend to think it's quite similar. Um, I do think in preaching that when it is appropriate, when it's there in the text, when that accusatory voice, the preacher shouldn't run from that. A lot of preachers might be kind of chicken because, well, people don't want to hear that. There's going to be less money in the offering plate. I don't want to go that route. But really, to preach the whole counsel of God, you can't run from that. You have to go exactly toward that. That's your calling. And I think when, when, when lay people hear the scripture read in church and read the text, they should be listening for God's voice. Is God's voice there? It's not always there. I don't believe every text of, of, of scripture has that, but I do think there, there, there's ones that do. And where is God's voice of comfort? Where is that? Um, I brought up the, the, the sense of exhortation for us. I, I think that that's, 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 that is in the scriptures, and all of that need, needs to be honored. Yeah, one thing that, that we often say in the Reformed tradition is that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. That's a really strange thing to say. Um, as someone who's listened to a bunch of sermons, I was a preacher's kid, hmm. listened to a bunch of sermons, saw my dad through the week, loved him, he was a great dad. The word of God, though? And now as somebody who preaches and who has to look in the mirror, I think that's a really strange thing. And you know what? The first thing you need to do when you hear a sermon is, is just take it on faith. Mm -hmm. I don't mean shut your mind off, but 
believe that God would have you there and by faith that this would be the word of God to you. And that means that it's the word of God from somebody who is fallible and imperfect, but who's an instrument that God is using to bring a message. And we talked this week about Jeremiah 1 and and Mm -hmm. the vocation of a prophet. And, And it's true for all preaching in different ways to pluck up, to tear down, to destroy, and then to build up and to plant. And you in faith look for how this passage is deconstructing and tearing down my assumptions, my identity, my will, my vision for my life, and how it's reorienting all that in what Jesus provides for me. Um, a new, new identity, new righteousness, uh, new power through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and a new vision and mission. Uh, we, we should be the last to, to be aimless, much, much less bereft with sloth, um, <laughs> because Christ puts you on a task. And that's a, a, a great gift of the gospel, that you get to be witnesses to the end of the earth by the Spirit's power. Um, and, and that occurs through preaching if we receive it in faith and, and listen for God there. Yeah, but I think those are all really helpful. I mean, I... I think quite naturally what I think of in this vein is Madonna, um, because as you know, um, Madonna has a very important song on the topic of preaching, and what happens in this song is that there's a daughter who's not listening to her dad. Danny Yeah, yes. this is, yeah, I have two daughters, this has never happened in my house, but apparently some daughters don't listen to their dads, and this daughter didn't listen, and she was running around with the guy the dad said don't run around with, and... Um, she gets pregnant, and she's got a problem, and she needs to go to her dad now. And she's going to tell him the truth, but she's afraid that he'll do one thing. So she goes, Daddy, I'm in trouble, but Papa, don't preach. Right? Because we all know that the last thing you want when you have a problem is a sermon, that you want preaching. Now, I think that helpfully diagnoses a problem or a perception we have of what a sermon is. It's getting lectured. It's getting, I told you so. It's getting told, this is what you should have done and this is what you're going to do now. And here's step one, step two, step three to how we're going to fix this problem. And if that's right, and then you have a problem, well then by all means, play Madonna and say, Papa, don't preach. But what if, what if what a sermon actually is, is God speaking to do the kind of work we're talking about here, to diagnose sinners, to tell us the truth about who we are. Outside of Christ, this is who you really are. But then also and ultimately speaking, to tell us the truth about who we are in Jesus. You are my beloved. In you, I am well pleased. This word that raises us to life. And if that's what a sermon is, then maybe the appropriate thing, and we, Zach, we need a Christian rewrite of this song that says, I'm in trouble, Papa, please preach. Right? This is the song we need. And I completely blame, blame preachers, I, unfortunately one of them, but I blame preachers for this perception. I don't blame congregations for this misperception of what a sermon is. But actually, as a sermon is one of those places where God does his work of, yes, convicting, but also comforting. Yes, diagnosing, but also delivering sinners. And so I think what that means about hearing sermons 
is not that there's anything you have to do. You don't have to bring the right colored pens or take the right kinds of notes or anything. All those things could be really helpful. Whatever helps you listen and be attentive as a hearer, those are wonderful things. But they're not going to be the difference between what's going on in a sermon. The most important thing I can say about a sermon is, well, if you don't want God to diagnose and deliver, to tell you the truth, I would recommend staying out of church. Because actually, what God has promised to do through these strange and ordinary things we call sermons is to diagnose and deliver sinners, to deliver his good news to sufferers, to give comfortable words to the weary, the weary and the worn out. And so maybe it's where you should go when you have trouble. But if you don't have any of that, then I wouldn't recommend going to church. But just maybe if there's something not right in your life like me, maybe church would be a good place to be. Yeah, this, this kind of comes around to something that uh, Mike said about one of the wonderful things about our tradition of having a lot of scripture in the services. Uh, but what they've said is, is the underlining point, and that is the mere possession of the Bible does not indicate the presence of the church. Uh, if there's any denomination that illustrates that, it's the Episcopal Church. Uh, but it's the preaching of the word of God. Right? It's, it's declaring the promises that are in Jesus Christ. And we see that in our articles where it says, how can you identify the church? It's where the word of God is preached and the sacraments of uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism are rightly and duly administered. And so when we're getting up there, uh, I mean, just in preaching, um, you know, if everyone tells me that was the, the best sermon I've ever heard, I start to worry uh, a little bit. Uh, so I've started asking people, well, what did you like about it? Uh, and I'm always uh, enthralled uh, by the fact that uh, that no one can tell me what it was that they actually liked about it, uh, but they just felt like that was what they were supposed to say in the receiving line. Uh, but uh, it, it really, uh, the law gospel, um, you know, putting that out there uh, from the pulpit uh, is is something that I need to hear, and everybody responds. Um, you know, the, the, we can talk about baptism as Christians being a beautiful image, uh, but to the unbeliever, you're killing that person. This is bad. Don't, don't do that to them. Uh, but for us on the other side who, uh, who know that we were once dead in our trespasses, um, it's beautiful. Oscar. First of all, you asked the question really well, um, so you should know that. Congratulations. Um, and now I'm going to turn it over to Mike and Mark. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we would we would all, in, in various ways, agree with that. Um, you know, I mean, you see it even in John 8, which we've been talking about. Uh, Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. 
Uh, don't go and sin no more on your own or in your own power. Don't go and sin no more uh, to please me or don't go and sin no more so that if I hear of you tomorrow, I come and tell them to aim for the head. Um, but I love you enough not only to pardon you, but also to guide you. Um, you know, it's it's wonderful that my wife chose to marry me and was merciful in that way. Um, it would be difficult if she married me and lived with me and never cued me in to how she received love. What sort of things would she like on her birthday or Christmas? Uh, what pleases her or displeases her? What will lead to flourishing in the relationship and in our home? It's an act of love for her to say, actually, please don't give me for my birthday what you would have given a previous girlfriend, right? That, that helps remove anxiety, awkwardness, and pain. And that's a great gift for clarity. We have so much anxiety when we want, what am I to do? And so for the Christian who knows, I am loved, I am accepted, that's not in jeopardy, direction is freeing. Direction doesn't tell you everything, who to marry, what house to buy, what job to take, but it provides sort of guidelines and uh, instances of direction that lead to discernment and judgment by the Spirit's power that, that make life doable and peaceful. And admittedly, we all, and, and hopefully one of these guys maybe will expand on this, we forget sometimes that the direction isn't about getting right with God or establishing my identity. We forget Jesus already said, your sins are forgiven, you're alive and you're in, in life after death. We, we think we're still the old person. Um, but Christ loves us again enough to remind us of that and to remind us that his, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Um, but the call to discipleship is a good and cheerful thing uh, that he takes pleasure in. Um, and so, yeah, there, there definitely is the gift not only of, of life, but of vocation and guidance and mission and purpose and, and a way that you can delight your father and bless others through the life you have to live in freedom. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, that uh, response a great deal. Um, all that said, I, I'm apt to hear what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There is a sense that the agency in me is the agency of Jesus himself. There's a sense of when I am reborn. And in fact, fear, love, and trust in God from my heart. That there's, there's kind of a sense that the whole law is already fulfilled. Now, all of that said, I'm inclined to think of uh, oh, uh, McLean, the novelist at University of Chicago back in the day who wrote A River Runs Through It. Maybe you saw the movie or read it. He started the uh, little novella saying my father was a Presbyterian minister. He believed that man was a damned mess unless he is properly ordered to God. And my father looked at that through fly fishing and, of course, through church. I think especially for people who have suffered from addictions, they often find a sense of order, a very important thing that helps them in their recovery. So you think about 12 steps. 
that helps give a sense of, of order to life. So, I mean, at one level, I, I, I would say, yeah, you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live. Christ is the agent in you that, that has done it all and has done it all for you. And so to indicate what Mike has said, you really have no anxiety that you may have to have. It's all been accomplished. It's all quite free. But I do understand from a day-to-day basis, um, I think the, the life of faith, uh, honoring, fearing God from your heart and acknowledging God's godness uh, lends itself to a walk that, that shapes itself like the Ten Commandments. It, it's not a, so much an issue, I think, of thou shalt not steal. Oh, my goodness, I better not steal. But you see, walking in God's light, you have received all these good gifts. Why would I possibly need to steal? And in fact, boy, I would like to give the shirt off my back. Yeah, um, I think both of what was said was really helpful, and I don't want to necessarily add too much to it. I would just want to affirm it and say that one of the things where we certainly all agree, and this came out very clearly this week as we chatted with each other, is that what the law cannot do, even though it can show you what is good, what is right, what is wanted, what you should do, what life should look like, what the law cannot do is produce the picture that it can show you, right? It can say you should love, but it doesn't put love in your heart. It can say you should help your neighbor, but it doesn't actually motivate you or impel you to do it. That comes from somewhere else. And what that comes from is the work that God does in the gospel to make us new creatures. By loving us while we were yet sinners, while we were unlovable, that act of love towards us bursts in us a love for God and for our neighbor. And then the question is, this love that's just been birthed, that it's just come from being loved by God, this spontaneous I want to love, which is what... Uh, the Lutheran tradition especially emphasizes with this notion of a spontaneous desire to want to do good works because good fruit flows from a good tree. You still have the question of, well, what might actually be loving? And as Mark knows better than I do, one of the things Luther liked to say is one of the nice things that the revealed will of God can do in these contexts is help you realize what would actually be love and what would be something else. Because you say, oh, I've got this motivation to love, I, I don't know what I do. I want to love God and love my neighbor. I'll um, go on a sort of pilgrimage or I'll join a monastery or I'll do all these things. And Luther said, no, actually, if you read God's law, what love would look like is figuring out what your neighbor needs. You know, their roof is leaking. So what love looks like is not going on a pilgrimage and donating some money to see a relic. It looks like fixing your neighbor's roof. And actually, you have wisdom in that guidance. So... I am affirming everything that's being said there, but I also want to say this as a kind of qualification. And it's it's not a qualification that I intend to take away from that. It's just to complexify the actual lived experience of that. Because, well, it's true to say that in Christ the law is fulfilled. Its accusation is behind us. That it can't actually threaten us anymore because the only thing the law can threaten is death. And if you've already died, well, what more can it say to you? That's all true, but that's not always the way it feels. One of Mark's teachers, a guy named Gerhard Ferdi, has this wonderful line, which he says, you can 
take the teeth out of the law. You can take away its bite. You can say, Christ died for you, so the law is behind you. It can't bite you anymore. But he said, you know, it can still gum you to death. And that's often what, I mean, that's a profound description of what life can feel like sometimes. Just being gummed to death by the mundane expectations of everyday life. And the reason I think this is important to say is it's one thing to be able to make the kind of distinction we're talking about theoretically, to say, okay, well, we know that the law does this kind of work and the gospel does this kind of work. And after God, through his gospel, has done the work of making us alive, well, now we can hear God's law again and receive it as wisdom and a guide for life. It's easy to make that at the level of words. But as Luther always said, this distinction, which is one of the easiest things to make at the level of words, is the hardest thing to make at the level of experience, especially when you screw up. When you mess up, when you do something that you shouldn't have done, when you are angry at your kids, or you've lied to your spouse, or you've done something that you know you shouldn't, the hardest thing in the world to believe is that God is relating to you in that moment, not on the basis of his law and on the basis of your sin, but on the basis of his gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so even though we have been crucified with Christ, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have that kind of problem. And this is why, just as the law always needs to be preached to the Christian for the reasons we've been talking about, so does the gospel. The gospel is not a one-time thing to get this life started, and then you don't need to hear it anymore because you needed Jesus all the way, 100% to get started. But, you know, growth in the Christian life would mean something more like getting stronger and getting more independent so that you need Jesus a little less and less. Right? No one actually says that, but it can feel like that sometimes. But in fact, just as you need to hear the law, the other thing you need to hear every day is the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, and that means you. Gosh, that's almost a really good thing to end on. Way to go, John. <laughs> yeah, do one more, but I also want to just point out uh, Wes Hill and Scott Swain, yeah. they were part of it. And uh, for two academics uh, to, um, to sit here quietly, they're going to have a lot to say if you want to talk to them after uh, we finish the Q&A and so seek them out. Ryan, do you want to say that? Yeah, so oftentimes when the law and gospel are talked about, it seems like the law is very easily to get right through the cold of trying to bad guy uh, who always, you know, did us and, and such. And uh, but you definitely see that mentioned in the Bible. But whatever you read the Psalms, such as Psalm 19, 119, and there's very strong language such as the law of the Lord is perfect uh, for body and soul, that always Confusing when it comes to these traditions, although I understand that Jesus and the Apostle Paul also uh, kind of created that huge point as well. So, uh, and earlier Mark mentioned that there may be other theological laws we can talk about beyond just this, uh, you know, the role of condemnation that it has. So, how are some positive ways then that we can read the law for ourselves um, in, in a way that the Psalms exhort us to do? The law is good, holy, just, and true. It's not the problem with the law. The woman caught in adultery, it was her, right? And and the fellow. The, 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 the problem isn't the law. The law is 
good, holy, just, and true. It, it, but the sinner will always be trapped by the law. Um, so uh, that's part of the functions of the law. It, it was an illusion that the sinner could actually obey it and somehow win some kind of stature with God. That was an illusion on the sinner's part, just like the two fellows trying to, to grab hold of the ark and rectify it as if it were their ark and not God's ark. So the problem isn't with the law. The law is good, holy, just, and true. Um, the, the problem is, is, with, is with the sinner. Um, the gospel liberates the person. And I, I'm apt to say uh, that one in union with Christ has sees the beauty of how God works in Scripture, in preaching, uh, through Jesus, and in nature. And can appreciate it as psalm as the psalms you're referring to. Uh, Father McDermott is here. I, is it okay for him to? Nope. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you want to, Jerry? Can you? Do you need a mic? No. Okay. I did say the word wisdom. Oh, okay. <laughs> in fact, well, I, I think I implanted look, it in look. your brain. <laughs> oh! Inception. I think you probably did. But, but um, uh, you know, I think you have to remember what Bonhoeffer said. That no Christian will ever understand the law or, or, or the Old Testament. And remember, he was speaking in the 30s. Uh, a decade that many of us think is being replicated today. He said no no Christian will ever understand the Old Testament until he or she can understand how the psalmist could say in Psalm 119 verse 97, Oh Lord, how I love thy law. Yeah. I think uh, that's exactly right and connects to the third use of the law, something that only the Christian can enjoy and, and one key element to that is to remember, uh, as Christians of old and Jewish readers before and since have pointed out, the first commandment in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments is a call to faith. And all of the commandments are to be received at root as 
a posture of faith receiving from your father. So, you know, think about Sabbath. If there's not a God and God isn't good and God isn't well disposed to provide for you, taking a day off is a rather stupid thing in an agrarian society of that sort, right? There are migrant people. Uh, They're they're not a, a populated, militarized, established people. To sort of take your hands off the wheel one day in seven is a little crazy, just strategically speaking, unless there's a God who promises, I will provide for you. And I have provided for you. And so you keep the the call to Sabbath by faith, right? I'm a parent, and I've already had to explain to my six-year-old, because he's pretty sharp. He knows I'm making it up half the time, right? I want him to honor your father. When I say do this, I'd like him to do this. When I say don't play in the street, I'd like him not to play in the street. He knows, though, I'm wrong sometimes. I'm guessing, right? And so I have to say, look, you need to trust that God didn't give you a perfect father, but did give you to me. And so you obey me, you honor me out of trust in your heavenly father, not in my aptitude, but in your heavenly father's care and provision for you, right? Uh, You don't envy or covet, not because the stuff's not great or you don't have needs, but because there's a, a God who provides and out of contentedness in that promise, in that life, in that provision, out of faith and only out of faith, do you embrace that call as a good, beautiful, life-giving, reviving, joyous practice uh, and speak like the psalmist. So one thing that's been central to understanding how we hear the law in a glorious, happy way in, in that kind of cadence from the psalms is that it always flows out of faith. You don't ever, John said, you don't ever not need to hear the gospel. You don't ever get past the need to entrust yourself to Christ. But Christ doesn't just want to die for you. He wants to spur you to live and to give yourself away for others. And he wants to give you a vocation and a calling and guidance and wisdom. And you entrust yourself in that way to him. Uh, your mind, your will, your dreams, your passions. Uh, and that that's a venture. If God's not the God revealed in Jesus Christ and in the scriptures, then that's a risky maneuver. But if he is, then it makes all the sense in the world. And it ends as beautifully as you could imagine. Like, I mean, seriously, like, how can you be neurotic? My wife, you're not in church. <laughs> you know, because that's, I mean, 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to get this. You know what? Uh, that makes all the sense in the world to me. Um, and I think that's why we read the Bible, because it tells us things that make sense in an extra-worldly way. The girl was dead, and she got up. And the man was in the tomb, and he got out. And life happens where death occurs. And someone's neuroses are not the most interesting thing about them. And they're not the most tangible or real thing about them, even though they see that and feel that and others experience that in seemingly the most real way. And that's why we need to hear the word preached. That's why we need our mind and hearts retrained. That's why we have to be killed and made alive. Uh, Because the most interesting thing about that woman or man is who they are in Christ, the union they have in covenant with him that he will never take them, uh, cast them away, and that he will uh, continually work upon them by his spirit to conform them to the image of God in Christ, eventually in glory. And so I would say that's, that's the call to faith, to say yes. And it may be long and arduous, and Hebrews and other texts say it's, it's a venture we make by faith, not by sight, oftentimes, for years and decades. Uh, But I believe in resurrection, and so I'm going to venture yes, uh, even though it's hard. And uh, oftentimes you feel very overwhelmed by what seems so palpable. Um, But the girl got up, and the man came out of the tomb. So, yes. Thanks, y'all. You're about to say we're done, right? We're done. But but listen, before we do that, (laughs) I need to say something on behalf of all of us who were here for the conference, because we wanted to have this conversation. We wanted to bring together a group of Lutheran theologians and Reformed theologians, but that's not very easy to do. We live all over the country. We all have different jobs. Imagining a context and a place to do that wasn't that easy. And when the Advent was willing to host us, be incredibly hospitable and generous with the time, and let this happen and then let us share some of it with you. And um, it's just been a real blessing to all of us. We've really enjoyed it. Doing this tonight was just a nice thing. And I'm glad to you who are here, we can say again, as we've been saying to the staff and the clergy, just thank you for helping to make this weekend possible for us. So it's been really meaningful. So thank you all very much. All right, y'all. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.